Uh, hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of Jokes, the podcast, where uh, me and, uh, by the way, me is Josh Burrows, and uh, Eric Norvell, who's going to be with me forever and ever on this podcast, no matter what he thinks, <laughs> sit down for a little while to talk about jokes, talk about uh, a joke in particular, or a set of jokes, or a particular routine that kind of caught us in a certain way and had an impact on us in a certain way and then kind of see where the conversation goes off of that. Um, and uh, the person who brought the joke this time was Eric. So how you doing, man? What's going on with you? How, what's the joke that you brought? Well, the joke is sitting in my garage. Um, it's freezing. I have a heater pushed up. I'm sitting in a bar stool on a stand-up desk. So I'm not actually standing at a stand-up desk. I've got uh -huh. a bar stool. Uh -huh. And I have the heater pushed under it, warming my butt. Um, <laughs> that, because that, otherwise, it's cold out here. Yo, that is uh, that is like the perfect podcast setting. Um, I'm sitting at my uh, kitchen table in my apartment um, in a very uncomfortable wooden chair, and uh, currently trying my best not to let myself start to cough because I realize that uh, um, every time I'm expected to talk or be somewhere public, I can't help but start coughing because I get afraid that everyone else is going to think that I have the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> well, that certainly is one way to clear a room now. And Oh my God, dude. You will ensure that no one is going to come near you if they in fact have it. It's, it's an inverse... Uh, it's an inverse um, social distancing. You're forcing the distance. I'm telling you, my nose doesn't itch all day. And the second I step in the Vons, which, by the way, is still filled to the brim with 80-year-olds. I don't understand what they're doing there at all. But uh, I'm still, I'm walking into Vons, and the second thing that happens is my nose starts itching. And I have, like, you know, I, you can't touch it. You can't touch it. I, I, I have, like, this little mask thing that I'm wearing now. Um, but all that does is make me want to touch my face more because I just want to adjust it all the time. I'm going to get sick because I'm wearing a mask is, is what's going to happen. And you could just cause you can't stop touching your face. You just, yeah. Oh, my face is so, oh, I just need to touch it. Uh, oh. <laughs> That's not, no, it's much more of a twitchy thing. This isn't like a, you know, nar narcissistic kind of thing. This is like a, like, like an obsessive compulsive sort of thing. <laughs> just anxious that everyone's going to think I'm sick. And so I start coughing and sneezing and stuff and, it's a mess. It's a mess. That's all I'm saying. Well, I've been paranoid for a whole month now. We're coming up on completing four weeks of, yeah. of quarantine. Mm -hmm. And uh, since I think that weekend when we first got told that, you know, it wasn't a strict shelter in place yet. It was like, well, the schools are canceled. Um, people have hoarded all the toilet paper. <laughs> you might need to go get some extra food. I went to this little grocery store. It was like a, a fancy pants grocery store with, mm -hmm. you know, holistic uh, herbs and such. For mm -hmm. and, and the girl in front of me at the checkout had something. All I saw in the box was flu-like symptoms. And I, <laughs> I'm, and I'm like, I'm going to this line over here. Like, <laughs> I've been that way now for a month. It, it, it's just, uh, yeah. And it's gotten worse. And I did go to Vaughn's tonight. Yeah, there are a lot of old people. I just thought it just seems so crazy now. I don't even remember what life was like now a month ago. Everything is just yeah ripped yeah. from the book, and we just have to assume that it started on March 13th. Have you ever heard of uh, weather amnesia? 
Weather M. No, I haven't. What is that? This might not be anything that you've experienced because for the most part, you've lived and grown up in relatively warm climates or was there a, was there like, were there seasons where you were? There were seasons. Yeah, no, no. I, in New Mexico, it got cold. I mean, we're high desert, so we would get cold and it would give it snow and schools would close, but they wouldn't close for, you know, protracted periods. And it was nothing like the year and a half I spent in Boston where, you know, when it snowed, it dumped like 10 feet and there were, um, <laughs> snow uh, trucks out there like pushing snow onto other cars and people were just slipping and falling and oily sandy salty grit on the streets nothing like that that's great yeah on the east coast we call that snurt that's what happens yeah the snow mixed with dirt becomes happens real quick too i mean that doesn't last when when it's falling it's real pristine but after like you know the first plow go goes by it turns into snurt real real quick and there are definitely people who like lose their cars and snow drifts in new york city at certain points in the winter and then just can't pull out until april you know (laughs) i have to wait till it melts um but uh no weather amnesia so you might know what this is then so weather amnesia so i grew up my whole life in places that have seasons you know missouri new york always seasons and i'm not great at remembering dates at all if it's not like an important anniversary someone died that day it's someone's birthday like i'm not going to remember it Um, but if i have a memory about something i can almost look around the memory and see what time of year it is and then know basically when it happened does that make sense to you yeah it does it does yeah you you can it's as opposed to the sort of episodic memory that i have i can kind of (laughs) put things together based on events that happened around them. Yeah. You know, Oh yeah. That was about the time that we got back from Disneyland and <laughs> my, you know, my dad fell off the wagon, you know, like those kinds of things. <laughs> that sounds painful. <laughs> I mean, you got to remember things somehow. I don't have, <laughs> I have a friend that actually has a great memory for dates in a, in a scary way. Where be like, <laughs> Well, that was a Thursday. Uh, it was uh we had gone to lunch at X, Y, and it's just, there's no reason yeah. to fill my space with that. That's my favorite thing about jazz radio stations, by the way, is like when the song is coming on and they're like uh, telling you all the specific things about that particular recording that like just shit you don't need to know, you know, or it's like uh, this recording is by uh, Charlie Parker and uh, right. Charlie Parker was playing on this kind of saxophone. They had uh, just come from a local deli nearby where Parker had a, he had a chicken sandwich uh, along with uh, some chips and he had some chicken in his teeth and you can, fa- you can faintly hear the chicken being blown around. And, you know, it's like ridiculous, you know, what they're saying. It's like, oh my gosh. Right. He thought, I think I will play these, you know, a few of my favorite things. <laughs> exactly. So uh, um, weather amnesia is out since living out here in San Diego, which does in a way have seasons, but not enough for me to recognize. I can't, I don't know when, I don't know when shit has happened ever. You know, like I look back on like, you know, memories from just the past number of years that I lived here and and I I have, I can't remember anything in terms of like when it happened. I can't place it in the time of year. Like when, when did you and I first start like grabbing lunch together? No fucking idea. We we could have been having lunch for years. You know what I mean? (laughs) I can't tell you what the first date was. I've got no idea. None whatsoever. So what I'm finding is that like now being in isolation is like that times a million. Because I, I like at one point was like, oh, is, wait, today's Thursday? And I could not remember like some pretty significant things that had happened either yesterday or the day before yesterday 
I'm completely losing my mind along those lines. There is like no variety whatsoever. And this is going to be a problem. <laughs> it is the first time that I have experienced that type of thing where I'm like, wait, is it Tuesday? Yep. Is it? I'm not sure. Like the, and, and again, I think episodically. So I think in terms of like this happened, then that happened, then that happened, yep. then that happened. Yep. And so that's helpful because I can actually string my life yep. into a series of events. No, it's just the same fucking thing over and over again right now. <laughs> but it's Groundhog Day. Yep. It's Groundhog Day. And I am like waking up. I'm getting up. I like am discombobulated. <laughs> I come down the stairs. I come to the garage. It's disheveled. It kind of stinks. <laughs> and it, it's like, I guess, I don't know. God, I hope I haven't, you know, I, do I have deadlines? Do I have some... Who do I have to call? What's going on? You know, and today I, I went for a run early in the morning uh -huh. with my wife, which uh -huh. was nice. Uh -huh. But we, on our way out, we looked, we're like, oh, it's trash day. Like neither one of us knows what's going on. We just have to look at the uh, external indicators to figure it out. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just all part of the same weird stuff. There's a press conference every day with Trump. There's a bunch of people screaming about Trump and people supporting Trump by screaming back at those people. Mm. And it's just cacophony and it's mental cacophony yep. and doldrums. Yep. And uh, that's why we have this podcast because good Christ, we need to break out of it. Thank we the need Lord. To, yeah. Look at some funny stuff. And today's joke isn't a joke. It's really, I couldn't think of a joke. Um, everybody, I've talked to about this podcast seems to have their own joke they want to do. And I think after the fact, Oh, that would be great, but it's theirs. They'll come on the show at some point and do it. And so I couldn't think of one. You have so many that you want to do. I, I just, just have was one, like, but I, you but just I, have one. You'll have more <laughs> <laughs> for me. This, this goes to the, probably the first, real adult comedian that I was yeah. permitted to listen to or to, yeah. to watch, which Rodney Dangerfield, yeah. uh, Jacob Rodney Cohen, uh, born 1921 later changed his name legally to Jack Roy, but never changed his name legally to Rodney Dangerfield, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. But everyone who remembers Rodney remembers how, you know, his persona, and it's fully embodied by this set that he did. I love this set that he did. Um, and it's not even the set, not the jokes, not the actual stand-up comedy part that he did on Johnny Carson in August of 1979, August 1st. It's not the stand-up part. He comes out and he does, and I counted him. He does, in three minutes and some change, some small change, about three minutes and five seconds, he does 18 jokes, That's insane. 18 one-liners, and they kill every single one of them. Yeah. And the thing is, he had been building at that point. He had a, he had a club in New York called Dangerfields. He was really reaching the height of his powers at that point. He was getting national reach. He was on Johnny Carson all the time. Everybody knew who he was. So when he came out on the stage, people were already laughing. He had that sort of effect people mm -hmm. you know comedians have that where they come out and they're like oh look bill burr people start chuckling just because they expect him to say something funny yeah. um no matter what he could breathe and it would just be funny uh -huh. and rodney was like that and rodney's all he always looked put together 
he was never disheveled, but his the his persona, his edginess, his nervousness, that gave him a sense that he was like truly disheveled. <laughs> yep. It's because he would start every act with, I'm all right now, but last week I was in rough shape. And <laughs> every set. And that just set the tone for the next 20 jokes that he was going to tell. And he was going to talk about his wife, his neighbors, his daughter, his son, his pets, everything. And they're just killer jokes. And so he has a killer set, but then he gets called to the couch mm-hmm. with Johnny Carson. Yep. And he and Johnny clearly friends, clearly friends for a long time because they knew each other's stand up. And it, it's shown by the ensuing seven plus minutes of conversation between the two. So to set the tone and what, what happens during the seven minutes is interesting. It is a series of setups to lead to an ultimate punchline in the context of late 1970s television. It starts with Rodney kind of shaking, you know, the way he walks kind of edgy up to, <laughs> up to the stage and onto the area where the couch is, where the desk is, where Johnny is. And Ed McMahon is there. And the guest that night was the old English actor, James Mason. Now, Mason, I don't know that much about him. I know he's been in a lot of uh, famous movies. He was he was in The Verdict as the bad guy. I remember that. And uh, what else has he been in? Do you remember? I don't know. All I know is that Eddie Izzard does a really funny uh, impression of James Mason. And uh, so does Dana Carvey. Both of them have very funny impressions of James Mason. And it's, he's got one of those voices that, um, that you don't even have to know anything about him whatsoever. But the impression of him is funny. Um, just to hear it and everything, it's, it's, uh, it's always funny. So I, I literally know nothing about him except that he's someone that apparently some comedians can do and I always get a kick out of it. <laughs> yeah, and Bill Hader actually has a James Mason. Bill Hader which does. Seems, oh, which seems weird and um, anachronistic because I'm not even sure if Bill Hader was alive yeah. when James Mason was alive. There might have yeah. been like a year of overlap. It's a good question for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dumb question, but who really cares? So James Mason <laughs> is up there and he's, he, he strikes the pose of a, you know, fairly erudite Englishman. And he's, he comes up there and here comes this, this like, you know, this loud yeah. New York Catskill yep. vaudevillian type comedian who's just, mm-hmm. just destroyed, killed the he, crowd. He enters there just like his character in Caddyshack. I mean, really, really, he just walks up there just like his character in Caddyshack. It's unreal. Yes, that is. And it's interesting because his performance in Caddyshack, which was, I think, the same year or the next year as this performance. Yeah. His neurosis, the, the way that he performs is there's a point during the next seven minutes, which is really interesting, which you're like, oh, yes, I heard that that happened. Uh, on the Caddyshack set. So he gets up to stage and he immediately, he and Johnny just have decided they've clearly talked about what they're going to do. Uh-huh. And he gets up there, he says hello to Ed and Johnny. And then he says, hello, Mr. Mason. You can hear him kind of like low. Just, he refers to him as Mr. Mason. He's not like, <laughs> hey, hey, Jimmy, you know, he's hello, Mr. Mason. So he's giving him this due deference. Uh-huh. Um, then he begins to speak. 
he has this strange thing going on with his throat. He casts, you know, he said, Oh, emphysema, you know, like that, <laughs> what, whatever. Uh, is that funny? I don't know, but everyone <laughs>, laughs. Everyone laughs. And then he and Johnny go into their respective plugs of their next shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, he has like a burp or something and it causes some hitch in the deal. And, uh, he says, hey, it could have been worse, you know, and that gets the crowd going a little bit more. Um, but then he, uh, you know, when Johnny says where he's going, it's a place called Chateau de Ville in somewhere in Massachusetts. Uh, Rodney says, yeah, I know a, a guy up there, a real great guy. You should meet him. Runs an all-night crap game. And it is dead silent. <laughs> Absolute bomb the audience no one in the audience even no no he's there's this uncomfortable pause rodney says hello and then johnny (laughs) says sometimes you got to break them in that reminded me of the stories i'd heard about a caddyshack where Mm. when he went onto the set and he was doing that whole run through he shows up in the rolls royce with his chinese friend wang (laughs) uh uh and they go through the uh, through the the pro shop, and he's saying, "Oh no, some of those naked lady tees." So as they're filming that, the set has to stay quiet. But he's getting more and more nervous. If if anyone laughs, it ruins the soundtrack. <laughs> so Rodney's just getting more and more nervous, like he thinks he's not being funny. So he had somebody had to talk to him afterwards, like, "No, you're killing. We just can't laugh because this is a movie." Like. <laughs> So he's doing stand-up the entire time, but they're filming a movie. And that's like his first experience. So he he bombs that joke. Um, Then he continues to talk about where he's going to perform Land of a Thousand Lakes, which is what it's 10,000 lakes. Johnny Carson keeps saying a thousand lakes. (laughs) Um, Rodney's clearly kind of like annoyed by that repetition, makes funny face. And Johnny laughs at it too. Then he makes... Uh, the first joke about singing the national anthem at a cockfight. <laughs> it's a weird joke. Talks really about how, joke. you know, that was sometimes you couldn't get a job. You know, his first job was singing the national anthem at a cockfight. <laughs> I don't know. That's weird. Would that even make sense today? Would Dude, anyone I, laugh at that? <laughs> no. But what's so crazy about that is the way that they, oh, you're going to get to how they respond, but it's almost like he's trying a new joke. I'm totally trying a new joke. That's the kind of joke I would make at Thanksgiving dinner and expect everyone to tell me to leave the room. Yeah, crickets. Absolute crickets. Yeah. You try that show for the first time on like, when you're like just starting comedy. Like really, like that's just like the first thing. And you try that out like, uh, you know, at an open mic night to crickets, basically. And he's trying it out on The Tonight Show with Carson. Right. Because where else is he going to do it? Know. You know, he's as big as any comedian. So he tells that joke. So that uh-huh. that actually gets a good response. People laugh. Mm-hmm. And he does an old standard joke. He's like, you know, they had to close his fan club. The guy died. Mm-hmm. That's an old one. And then he yeah. hits. He proceeds to hit several jokes. I I counted. I think during that um, during that next several minutes which is really banter between him and Johnny uh-huh. and Johnny messing up the cues and having mm-hmm. to be corrected. Uh-huh. He ultimately does another 15 or 16 jokes. Yeah. So he does two three minute sets. So he has a full pounding, you know, could be six to 10 minutes 
anything anyone would be proud of. It's like, yeah. you know, it's like looking at Bob Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited and just saying, <laughs> oh, yeah, he, he did that, you know, uh, just off the cuff one night, um, you know, in, in a club in Greenwich Village. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. Then he, he proceeds to talk. Now, there, then here we get into some things that, you know, I apologize for just chattering on, but there's a lot here. There's a lot there, man. There's a lot here. Yeah. And then he gets to a joke that just would never appear on television today at all, ever. Nope. It would be it would be bleeped out. No way. Um, <laughs> he talks about performing in Vegas, and he says, yeah, I knew a guy up there, a real wild guy. He's from Texas. He has a big rancher. He has, you know, he has 60 hands, all working on him. <laughs> and that alone... It's kind of a funny joke. That wouldn't yeah. be bleeped out. But what Johnny says in response would be, he says, oh, you mean the gay ranchero? Yeah. And to which Rodney Dangerfield seems surprised at that banter and goes, hey, you're all right. Okay. <laughs> so what we've got is we've got this steady, like, climb and escalation of banter between the host and the guest uh -huh. and the guest is really just doing a stand-up set, but the host is trying to play along, mm -hmm. but he's, and, and he, he has some success. And so now he feels, I think like, okay, we finally got it figured out. We finally got our cues. <laughs> um, let's see. Yo, while you're looking at the next thing, the first thing that really jumps out at me here is a fascinating juxtaposition between his self-deprecation and his confidence. I mean, that's kind of like, where some a lot of his magic is in terms of how he how he functions but if you were to you know take comedians and just look at you know who is the most self-deprecating comedian there's no question that he's the king of that type of comedy i mean there there, there never has been anyone like him never anyone before never anyone, anyone after in terms of just joke after joke after joke of you know how awful he thinks he is all the time yeah how awful he thinks he is how awful he thinks yeah. his family is yeah yeah. You know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. As, yeah. As Johnny, the first thing Johnny said to him when he stepped on the on the stage that night was, you know, you, because he had such a killer set, he said, you know, you're you're gonna start getting so much respect that you're gonna be out of a job. <laughs> yeah. Because his whole thing was, I get That's no right. respect. I get no respect right. at all. And and yet you, you juxtapose that to a guy who you know hears Johnny come back with a great improvised line that really gets the audience, and it takes him by surprise. But then he goes, hey, you're all right, you know, which <laughs> is like. <laughs> you're all right. And that totally disarms Johnny. Like, it, it disarms and it pulls, it pulls his power back. The jokes are back with him. He's yep. back performing. He you immediately know, thank you, Johnny, for your, of it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your moment. Now yep. back to me. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> then, he, then he makes a, a joke about, these are really just one-liners. This is all Catskill type, Porsche yep. Belt, vaudeville mm -hmm. type humor. You know, like women are classy. They go, they when they go to the bathroom, they say, uh, you know, I'm going to powder my nose. And you know, if your nose is there, you're in a lot of trouble. And that's <laughs> weirdly phrased, right? Yeah. It's indirect and it takes a minute to think about. And you're like, okay, would that make it uh, on the shows at night? Would that make it on Conan? It might make it on Conan. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things that are allowed. Would it make it on Fallon? I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so he's slowly amping these things up. Then he talks about um, 
a guy who, you know, had an affair with the woman and he said, you know, the rabbit, the rabbit doesn't die. It just stays in critical condition. (laughs) That's an archaic joke. What does that I don't even know. I don't even know if anyone knows what that means anymore, but it started killing that. Do you know what that means? No, you have to explain it to me immediately. Okay. So my understanding of it, Josh, is that uh, in old, this is old wives stuff, old wives tale stuff, is that if a woman thought she was pregnant, they Uh didn't have like a, um, you know, a, a, a pregnancy test, right. That you get at the at Walgreens or CVS. Yeah. What they, they would have, I guess people had rabbits. <laughs> now as I'm explaining, I'm like, where the fuck did the rabbits come from? You mean rabbits? Like, this people, living rabbit? People had literal like living rabbits and purportedly the woman would spit into the rabbit food. This may be ripe for editing, by the way. This might be no, no, no. Bullshit. Keep the fuck going immediately. <laughs> Do not even <laughs> a second of this. This is ridiculous. Spit Keep into the this. water or the food of the rabbit, the caged rabbit. And if the rabbit died, then that meant that the woman was pregnant. So that's where the saying, "Oh, the rabbit died." The meaning, oh. oh She's pregnant. That's where that comes from. What in the fuck? First of all, we needed to just take a time out in one second and just remember that this is 1979, which isn't yeah. that long ago. And that joke worked in that audience, which means the majority of people understood exactly what he was talking about. Is that really what they did? That was by the time that I was alive, that particular phrase just meant somebody was pregnant i didn't know the etymology of it until i heard it years and years later so sometime in the past 47 years i heard someone explain it and it could have been because i have uh what is it called weather amnesia it could have been five weeks ago it could have been 30 years ago yeah somewhere in that window (laughs) All I know is, before we move on, we need to just take one moment and recognize that before a certain year, people had very, very strange relationships to rabbits. Because, look, if ever a, a boomer or anyone older ever makes fun of you for having a cell phone in your pocket and being obsessed with your cell phone, all you have to do is just remind them that in the 70s, they wore, um, they kept severed rabbit's feet on their on their keychain. I when I was a kid, I wanted a rabbit's foot. <laughs> I know, dude. I used to like my aunt had one, and I used to just like, like I, I would look at it, and then I would like touch its fur, and then I would just think about how horrible it was. <laughs> that it was like <laughs> actually a real rabbit's foot, and somewhere like there was either I imagined a rabbit on crutches, you know, trying to just hop, but there's just no hopping without any feet. But now I know what happened. They were taking off all the feet of all those rabbits who died from pregnant ladies. <laughs> it's been a mystery for years. It's solved now, man. <laughs> right. Where did all these rabbits' feet come from? Well, you know, it's the pregnancy test. Babies being born. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. For every baby, a rabbit dies. But because, oh. you know, they reproduce like rabbits. No big loss. <laughs> What's that joke? Uh, uh, two rabbits are being chased by a, by a um, you know a pack of dogs, and they run into a um, you know an empty, uh, hollowed out 
uh, tree trunk and they hide in there and the tree trunk is too small for the dogs to get in. But now the dogs are waiting for them to come out and they're stuck inside. And it's like, gosh, what are we going to do? And one rabbit says to the other, well, I don't worry about it. Just wait till we outnumber them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a joke. There's Absolutely. a joke. All right. Yeah. All right. So should we, should we move on? So yeah. So you got this and there's a slow build on this. Yeah. Uh, the next, the next thing, and then he goes into a set of gay jokes, which yeah. wouldn't work. Where no. he says, you know, I, my half brother, he says, well, he's not really my half brother. I mean, you know, he said, he's my brother. We have the same parents, but he's just that way. And <laughs> that kills. I know. And then he talks about how, I didn't Did you understand when you heard it, what he was talking about exactly? Cause I didn't until the next joke. No, the Give next joke. joke clarifies what he's talking about. What with that way, yeah. which is the, he says, you know, I, it's uh it's weird having a gay brother. You know, I always said, you know, in the family tree, he was in the fruit section. And for some reason, the yeah. version that's online with yeah. this joke bleeps the word fruit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, so much worse that could have been said there. But it keeps but, the F. So it made me think for a second that he said the other word. But then it was like, doesn't make any sense. It's it wouldn't make, it wouldn't make yeah. any sense. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, unless he's just careening into surrealism at I that know. moment. Like, mm. I know, I know. <laughs> and, going straight into bizarre, like <laughs> yeah. yeah, homophobic slurs, which he he didn't. I mean, it was just the fruit section. That's the only joke that makes sense in that context. Yeah. So that you know, that you get more laughs building. You know, talks about how, uh, you know, his wife and her boyfriend, another joke. Um, and then uh, he starts talking about, let me, let me recall this. Help me out here, Josh. Because then he goes into a discussion of his wedding day or the wedding day joke. What was that? What was that? Joke? Oh, God. Oh, my God. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I'm trying to remember. Oh, that. it was when everyone cried. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Her mom cried yep. on the way to the hotel. She cried. Yeah. She got undressed and I cried. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Nineteen seventy nine. Would that joke be made today? I don't no. know. It hard to, hard to see it having any traction because no. it is playing off of like uh, a demeaning type. It's not even a stereotype. It's simply demeaning. It's just demeaning. Um, it's just demeaning. Okay. You could do you could do it about yourself though. You could say, um, you know, oh, you could wedding, totally flip it. Yeah. Yeah. You could say our wedding was beautiful. You know, I cried at our wedding and then we got to the hotel room afterwards and I got undressed and then she cried that you could do. That, that would work, do, but you couldn't do it the other way. And you could do it. Anyone could do that too. Anyone could do that, but you couldn't do it the other way. And remember at this point, he's ramping up with, uh, the joke about his gay brother, which you know, yeah. clearly is just a make-believe brother. The mm -hmm. rabbit dying, all these like all sexual fake. jokes. Yeah, it's all fake. And he's, what's that? It's all fake. He's making it all up. He's making it all up just yeah. because it's, I mean, that's comedy. You, you can do that. You have the license to create. This whole time though, James Mason is sitting next to him <laughs> and we can't see James Mason nope. because the camera is on Rodney and occasionally Rodney and Johnny. Yep. 
there will be, you know, that shot and then the shot of two of them, or basically two cameras. Yep. And the whole time, James Mason, the old English actor, 70 years old at that time, is sitting next to Rodney Dangerfield. We have no idea what he's doing. He's just he's sitting not laughing. There. He's, he's not laughing. We don't hear him. Yeah, no. Nope. Ed. Yep. Yeah, he's not laughing. <laughs> and, you know, it continues to build. He talks about his kid. Oh, my kid's a mean kid. He put super glue in my preparation H. <laughs> I like that. Good joke. I'd use that joke. Um, yeah. yeah. Then the next one, his daughter voted most likely to conceive in high school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's okay. I don't no. know if that's an okay joke anymore. Not an okay I, joke anymore. I, not an okay joke anymore. But it continues to build. And it gets people who are sensitive a little more uncomfortable. Uh-huh. And, and then he makes a weird joke about kids being interested in cocaine. Rather than read Snow White, they want to shove it up their nose. <laughs> Even in 1979, I don't think anyone knew how to react to that joke. No, not yet. But I think that might be a, just a little bit of a recognition of what's going on in like the entertainment world versus the rest of the world just yet. You know what I mean? Like he would have seen a lot of it and done a lot of it by then. <laughs> it's true because he did, he did garner a reputation after that yeah. for yeah. Um, having a propensity to uh, partake in cocaine. And, <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, he, that was that was the time. Remember, that was 1979, almost 80. That was about the time that Bill Hicks and Sam Kennison were working out their stuff down mm-hmm. at the Laugh Stop in Houston. Mm-hmm. And it, then Kennison started to really make a name and came out to L.A. And if ever there was the king of uh, cocaine, it was it was Kennison. Yeah, and, uh, according to legend, I and was Kennis- there, obviously. Kinnison got his big break on the uh, um, Young Comedian special that was hosted by Dangerfield. Which is where I discovered Sam Kinnison. I was, we were driving back from Disneyland. It was Mm -hmm. my family, my my brother, sister, mom, dad, and me. Mm -hmm. And we stopped in Las Vegas Mm -hmm. because my parents love to do that stuff. They like to go play whatever games were there and they put the kids we were still not old enough to really i think my sister would have been 17 maybe um so old enough to kind of like you know be alone but not old enough to be out and about and left us in the la quinta there used to be a la quinta right on the strip maybe there still is (laughs) but i don't know i i don't think there is but we, we left there they left. We had HBO, which was like, holy shit. Uh, yeah. That was the feeling yeah. like, oh my God, it's, we, we can sin. And yeah. so, <laughs> so that particular special came on and I saw Sam Kennison for the first time. I'm like, oh my God. And he was doing the jokes about, this is the second episode of jokes. And we're talking about Sam Kennison for the second time. Second time. And we're jokes. not doing a Sam Kennison joke yet. No, we're not. We will. Yeah. We'll have to, Um, where he talks about uh, the Ethiopian famine. Yes. (laughs) I was going to mention that joke. (laughs) Yes. Why don't you go where the food is? That joke. (laughs) Right. And his yelling, and I'd never seen anything like it. And I was like, I got to figure out who this guy is. (laughs) So completely impossible to do now. Yeah. Maybe you could. 
I don't know, Josh. I mean, I'm talking about, I'm trying to get us from point A to point B during this set, this, this second set, the Dangerfield was doing on Carson's show. Uh-huh. And I, I'm the whole time I'm saying things like, I don't know if you could get away with that now. I don't know if you could get away with that now. Yeah. But part of being a good comedic performer is that the laughter tells you what you get away with. Yeah, and the presentation too, I think. I mean, you know, the thing about Dangerfield is he's so self-deprecating that you almost can't help but but forgive him for his 1979 fucking, you know, um, sensitivities because he, he's, he's, so, he's so self-deprecating about it, you know, um, and about the way he kind of goes about it. There's, there's, there's nothing really hateful about it except that he's operating from the mindset of this is yet another example of how bizarre my life is, which is problematic now because they're, you know, having a gay brother wouldn't make your life more bizarre at all, you know, but that's the mindset that he's kind of operating from. He remains to this day, one of the most beloved comedic figures of all time, you know, and by people who have sensitivities just like ours, where we're just like, Oh man. Yeah, that was 79, my dude. (laughs) But you could easily imagine him adjusting his, act to today and still being relevant doing like you know a significant percentage of his jokes but knowing better that not you know not to do jokes like that you know what i mean yeah i do and i i I don't know if he would or if he would enjoy the discomfort that comes along with things like that in one of his in one of his albums um i think it was rapping rodney it was yeah i think it was rapping rodney not the first one no respect where there's a bit where he does a little crowd work and he just says, you know, ask me some questions. And uh, a woman yells out, what's easy money? And he yells back, the way you make it, honey, that's easy money. <laughs> it's, like, Man, that's so quick, so good. That, that could happen today. That, could, that absolutely could happen today. Yeah. And it's, it's a little off character because it's not self-deprecating at all. It's actually really aggressive but a great joke and it, it, yeah. it knocks somebody. Yeah. Yeah. So in any event, so we've gotten to this point where he's on this, he's, he's still up there. He's made this and he suddenly made this joke about cocaine that it, that's weird. <laughs> and so there's a bit of a pause. So you've had, you know, a first joke that didn't work a few jokes that are, you know, off color, but they're hitting with the audience and there's a slow build and Johnny has, you know, made a few missteps and is really finally just to the side, just listening and kind of cueing Dangerfield on and saying, oh, you have a weird family. Oh, you have a weird life. Oh, man. And then he says, you know, even my dog is weird. You know, I tried to mate her. She wanted 50 biscuits. (laughs) That joke causes Johnny Carson to put his head down on his desk and laugh uncontrollably and part of that as you and i had discussed earlier may have been because johnny carson had a lot of marital problems (laughs) because he comes back with a complete like something that would cause a massive tweet storm today which is a female's a female no matter what species he says that to rodney (laughs) rodney's just kind of like you know hey and he kind of lets it go because he feels the momentum. He yep. knows that momentum is is there. Yep. And uh, 
Then he goes on to the next one line. He's like, nothing's been working for me. I did push-ups in the nude. I didn't notice the mouse trap. <laughs> okay, so he's building on the dog biscuits joke with that joke too. And he's, he's suddenly compressing them. He's putting them out faster. He's putting he went, them out way faster. Way faster. And it's worth pointing out that in 1979 on The Tonight Show, he went from a joke where you're stuck with an image of your head of Rodney Dangerfield trying to fuck a dog, followed by Rodney Dangerfield getting, <laughs> getting a, a mouse trap on his penis as he's doing push-ups. Those are two penis jokes in a row. Both of them were like thinking about Rodney Dangerfield's penis doing two very awful things that right. would never want to happen to a penis. At least right. a, a human The one, first one you know? is a sexually depraved joke. <laughs> bestiality joke. A bestiality joke followed by a weird doing push-ups in the nude. Uh-huh. And why is there a mouse trap out in the middle of the floor? It's so weird. It's so ridiculous. Yeah. And, but it's put bang, bang, because uh-huh. he's just been hitting these jokes and he's accelerating and that's what really i find to be interesting about this set because he starts killing beyond killing he's just hitting and hitting and hitting and his next joke um he continues to talk about his health right what's uh-huh. the next joke let me see it's uh oh he talks about uh his doctor what's his doctor's name dr vidi Bumbats. that's vidi Bumbats. that's right dr vidi Bumbats. by, by the way um, vidi boom is a is a thing i mean from the east coast you know uh we, we do a lot of uh you know hey vidi Bumbats, how you doing over there <laughs> like look at this vidi Bumbats over here that that like was a part of the lexicon for sure what does it mean i mean did it derive from ronnie dangerfield uh, probably, probably. I didn't know it as a kid, but I, I kind of take it, and I could be incorrect here, but I kind of take it as like a schmageggy, basically. <laughs> Do I have to explain that one too? What a schmageggy yes. is? <laughs> yes. <laughs> a schmageggy is probably a Vinnie Boombots, you know. Look at those Boomboxes up there. Look at the schmageggies up there. It's like, uh, um, I don't know, kind of a somewhat, you know, sort of a not exactly intelligent person trying to figure shit out. <laughs> <laughs> do you know dr nick from the simpsons uh no i don't know who dr nick is from the simpsons dr nick is a quack and he's got like weird like semi-crossed eyes and he speaks strangely and is completely incompetent okay i've melded vinnie Boombots and dr nick together like maybe that's what he's talking about you know my doctor dr vinnie Boombots, that guy is it kind of like a Dr. Nick? Yeah. He starts talking, he, he, he evokes Dr. Vinnie Mubatz and you know, he says my health is bad, very bad. That's the only, that's the only thing he says about his doctor, but it gets a laugh because everyone knows that character. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then he goes on to say, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm getting old. You know, my bir- <laughs> at my last birthday, my birthday cake looked like a prairie fire. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that just amplifies it. And then he said, and then he kills it with the last joke of the set, which is, you know, at my age, I want two girls at once. So if I fall asleep, they have somebody to talk to. Yeah. yeah. That's the culmination of seven minutes of jokes, at yeah. which point everyone's laughing and he stops 
and he looks over at James Mason and goes, so what's new with you? <laughs> he looks over at James Mason and says, what's new with you? Yep. And that causes Johnny Carson to jump back out of his chair and basically run off the stage because it's, it's an absolute surprise. These jokes, which have just getting been getting more and more racy and sexual and depraved and weird being egged on by Johnny Carson the whole time. Uh uh And then he gets to that last joke about being with two women at the same time. And then he looks over at Mason as if to make casual conversation <laughs> while Mason has not been laughing the entire time and yep. frankly looks mortified when yep. they finally pull the camera back. <laughs> and that, that is the progression of the joke that I chose for today. There's a lot that we've already unpacked. What were your thoughts when you saw it? It's perfect. You know, it's absolutely perfect. I mean, you know, it's great because like, First episode, right, we're talking about um, a, a comedian in, in the name of Emo Phillips who is enigmatic in that it's really hard to tell who he actually is behind the character. With Dangerfield, you know, you, obviously he's overblowing certain things there. In terms of who he really is, you know, there is still a lot of self-deprecation, but um, he's, he's like the perfect comedian where you know he's dropping these brilliant brilliant jokes but allowing his nervousness his anxiety and also his supreme confidence to come out simultaneously and it's such a hilarious mixture that you just can't help but be blown be blown away by it constantly you know i mean he's he's brilliant he's absolutely brilliant um i mean that's what i take away from it is that just like his whole presentation is is uh, um, what makes it all work, you know? Yes, and that and because, as I said at the beginning, like he's put together impeccably. He has a really nice suit. His yeah. shirt is beautifully pressed. But underneath his it, tie, he's a mess, man. <laughs> his tie is tied perfectly. Yeah. But everything about his presentation is that his life is a disaster. Uh-huh. He's a disaster. Uh-huh. Everything's a disaster. He's trying to, he's trying to mate, quote unquote, he's trying to mate his dog. He's, you know, he's talking about all these things that are just completely off the wall. And especially for 1979, where things were, I mean, let's face it, things were not like prudish. It wasn't 1955. No. no. Things had changed. And yeah. there were, there were comics that were out there that were pushing the envelope and guys like Johnny Carson were letting it happen late at night. Yeah, I frankly think Johnny Carson enjoyed letting those things get snuck in. Yeah, you know, those those jokes because he liked the road work. It was you know the stuff that you would see late at night that your you know your parents would surprise you and they'd be like, "Let's go see a show," and you'd get there and suddenly you'd hear you know shit and piss and fuck and son yeah. of a bitch and be like, "Oh yeah. my god, is this what you guys actually do?" Oh yeah, and uh, I think that that's that's the imbalance of. And the, the imbalance of also when you suddenly realize that James Mason is actually still there yep. at the end, it's yep. such a surprise because it throws everything off balance yet again. You and can, it's perfect. It's perfect. You can almost see the, I mean, knowing that the two of them are friends and knowing what you kind of know about both of their character, you can see the conversation happening. 
where Dangerfield is just like, you kidding me? Like, you're bringing me on with James Mason? Like, I'm going to do my routine with James Mason sitting next to me? Are you out of your mind? <laughs> like, why are you making me do that? And then he goes on and does it, and both of them are dying because, you know, James Mason is obviously sitting there stone-faced. Stone -faced. And, uh, and then he turns and tries to bring him into the fucking conversation at the end. And you could, like, I read Carson's laughter as, like, easily 70% you know, that, like, it was funny because he was saying that to James Mason. You yes. know what I mean? Because of, like, the stature that that guy has. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of amazing. It's kind of amazing. What do you know about, uh, about Rodney Dangerfield, the man? You know, the guy, uh, the, the guy in terms of as he actually was. What I, what I've known about him that I picked up over the years, and I'm going to move my, uh, I'm going to move my, bar stool away from my desk for a moment so you'll hear that <laughs> that sounded fake is that really what that was that sounded like you made that my sound bar like your mouth. moving away from my desk because my garage has a concrete floor ah. and so that's and i'm getting myself something to drink so that i can talk about rodney i really hope rodney, you keep this part in the podcast rodney was born uh, he was, he'll, he would have turned a hundred years next year. Yeah. I loved Rodney Dangerfield. My dad let me listen to Rodney Dangerfield and actually listen to Rodney Dangerfield with me. Rodney transcended everything. He was, he was initially a Catskill comedian early in his life, but yeah. then he had to raise a family. And I think he retired from, um, he retired from comedy for some years and became like an aluminum siding salesman. <laughs> And returned to comedy when he was in his 40s yeah. um, and began doing sets. And by the time we catch him on this set, he's about 50, when I say he was 57, almost 58, um, and really just reaching the height of his powers, as I and said earlier. Like he, he had come out and he'd just begun working the clubs. And by that point, he's so powerful, he has... He may have more than one danger fields. I think he definitely has the one in New York. Yep, I've been to that um, one a few times. Right, and so he he's got that level of business success, uh -huh. comfort, yep. and he, he's just doing whatever the hell he wants. Yeah, uh, he's always held up as a guy who didn't find success until later in life. Which I don't know. I mean, what's later in life, Josh? I mean, you're what 44, 45? 44, 44, 44. Yeah, yeah. you turned forty five this year. Yeah. I mean, what's later in life? It all seems to be kind of just life, right? I mean, it's a perspective thing, you know. I mean, I'm I'm two and a half years into a new new career path, you know, and a, a lot of the other guys in my uh, in my in my level in my company are all in their twenties, basically. So, uh, you know, that's like I think that's probably the definition of getting at something later in life, you know, where when if the people who are the upstarts around you on the same level um, are, uh, you know. 20 years younger than you it's gonna it's gonna say something but uh right. yeah <laughs> i mean what I is, what is, 50 is late in life though I, late in life and later in life you know he had a good amount of decades to really enjoy his success oh yeah i mean he lived i think he died in like oh four yeah um so he would have been in he would have been in his 80s yeah so it's good yeah life, and, man. and he was the king i mean he was essentially 
from what I can tell, he was the he was kind of the potentate of the comedy scene in L.A. and New York for a long time. A hundred percent. When you put you know, him the, in his when you put him in his proper context in terms of how big he was at one time, you have to think of him in terms of you know how there's like th- there doesn't seem to be one right now. Um, but there is often like a comedian or a comedic actor or, or, or an improvisational comedian, you know, comedic actor who kind of gets a run where they're top billing for a bunch of movies in a row, you know? So like Will Ferrell had his run before yeah. that Jim Carrey had his run, Eddie Murphy had his run and Rodney Dangerfield had his run, man. Like he was the guy for a while. <laughs> Well, I remember, I'm trying to think the movies that he did. I'll look them up while we're talking because I have that ability to do that. But off the top of my head, he did Caddyshack, uh-huh. Easy Money, uh-huh. uh, Back to School. Yep. Back to School, um, he's top billing. By the time he's back to school, he's the star of the movie, the top yes. star of the movie. Yes, he is. And Sam Kinison is in that mm-hmm. as one of the teachers. Yep. As um, Sam Kinison, basically. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. As Sam Kinison as himself. Just yes. being just being a an ostensible character. And he um, gets into a fight with Rodney Dangerfield in one in a really great scene in there. Remember they get into like an argument about something. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And he's screaming at Rodney to say it. Say it. <laughs> and I don't even remember what he was trying to have him say. No, no. <laughs> So let's see. So in 1980, Caddyshack, 83, Easy Money. Um, and then there's some TV stuff in there, not mm-hmm. necessarily the news. Then he does Back to School in 86. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's see. Doesn't look, and then he does, he's out of movies, but he does a lot of little things. Then he does Ladybugs, yep. which is like a kid's movie about soccer, right? Yep. He plays the coach. Then he does what I consider to be one of the most disturbing roles any human being has ever done. And it's as Juliette Lewis's dad in Natural Born Killers. Yeah. Did you I, ever see that? I do, but I blocked him out as her dad. And I'm getting <laughs> a little bit of a rush in there now, and it's kind of disturbing. But yeah, I blocked him out as her dad. That was so, a crazy-ass movie, man. That was a really crazy movie. So that segment of the movie where Juliette Lewis is playing Mallory and uh, Woody Harrelson is Mickey mm-hmm. and they're showing her family life with Rodney Dangerfield as her dad. Yep. The way that Oliver Stone does it is he frames it as a sitcom. So he has a laugh track mm-hmm. attached to it, which when you see Rodney Dangerfield, you're like, Oh, this kind of makes sense, right? He's a mm-hmm. funny guy. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be a sitcom, but he is a nasty uh, child molesting. Yeah, he's he, a sex he, predator. Yeah, he's a sex predator. He gropes Juliet Lewis, who, who's playing his daughter. Uh huh. And he, I think the the line that he calls her, "You fucking bitch." Yeah. And that just that sequence is so disturbing it, in the context of anything that anyone has ever done, yeah. especially Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. After that, I don't know if he did any any other real work because by then he was into his seventies. Yep. I think he he was getting old. He was doing stand up still, but I think he was in his twilight. Yeah. But yeah. 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 What an amazing character! 
I mean, I mean, when you think about, first of all, this natural born killer's role, what's brilliant about that is that's the only way he could, I mean, he, this wasn't a man who was like a great actor or anything like that. You know, what he could do was just himself. Um, but I guess Oliver Stone there figured out that like that was the most creepiest way to sort of pull it off. And the only way to get Dangerfield to do that is to set that kind of language in a sitcom kind of setting, you know, but. Um, right. And, and to play it upside down, to just yeah. play it a yeah. through this, through this refracted glass. I, um, I think you can categorize him in two categories as I think about it, maybe more, but the two that I have right now is one, I think you could categorize him among the most prolific comedians in terms of who had the most amount of jokes. You know what I mean? Like, like you think about someone, you know, like, uh, like Stephen Wright, he's come up already. How many jokes does that man have? Oh man. Books worth, right? Books and books, you know, um, uh, there's a number of comedians who are kind of like that. I mean, you know, again, Louis, Louis C.K., um, in terms of, you know, what he used to do, and I guess still does in a way of uh, just a new special every single year. And the amount of jokes that, you know, you sort of goes through and retire, as opposed to someone like Seinfeld, who's completely singular and brilliant, but Seinfeld will work a joke through for 10 years, he once said in an interview. He'll just have a joke and keep it for 10 years, man. <laughs> it's a long time sure. to have a joke, you know. I mean, it's sort of amazing. And then the other group I put him in is um, a group of uh, comedians who are, who are just as crazy in life as they are on stage. You know, where like a lot of comedians who were close to him just have a shit ton of really crazy stories about him. You know, um, going over to his house for dinner and, um, and he comes out in a robe and he's like fucking naked underneath and you're like there with your wife. You know what I mean? And he sits there and he like crosses his legs and his robe opens up and there are his balls just hanging down. You know, just stories like that over and over again about Ronnie Dangerfield and what a complete nut he was. Right. Um, and there are stories of him, you know, bringing out like paper bags full of cocaine. Yeah. yeah. Right. Hey, you know, welcome. You know, that's yeah, it's just complete craziness. And then you look at him and you look at someone like uh, Artie Lang, maybe. Um, you know, Patrice O'Neill in terms of some of the stories you hear about him and the life that he lived. Um, you know, certainly some of the more tragic comedians who didn't like make it, you know, like Mitch Hedberg, et cetera. But just these people who were like almost crazier off, the, off stage than they were on stage. In, in terms of quality of comedy mixed with this sort of, this comedic persona combined with the offstage persona is there anyone that you can think of that that is similar i mean his contemporaries all his his peers in comedy at the time i mean were he was older than them yeah. but they were still his peers like richard pryor yeah robin williams yeah um you know those guys uh was there anybody that was similar in, in that right maybe pryor Maybe in terms of just as crazy off stage as they were on stage. Yeah. Robin Williams famously, famously in his younger years and throughout his life struggled with really serious addiction. And, and Williams, I mean, Robin Williams would famously make references to cocaine in the middle of Mark and Mindy. You know what I mean? Just like, um, whoa, white ghost, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that dude. And then you have to probably go to Chris Farley. You know, when you want to start looking at like just that completely reckless lifestyle, um, mm. you know, Chris Farley, uh, 
Um, certainly him and then, you know, Robin Williams, they were really famous for that, man. Really, really famous for that. And he's the one that lived till he, you know, he lived until he died of old age. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, you know, to, to emphasize it again, what's so interesting is that he had this, I mean, I, I can't imagine if he had come out dressed any other way than as a man of his era would have mm-hmm. for a serious business meeting. Like this was his work. Yeah. You know, he was going to work. He was an aluminum siding salesman, but mm-hmm. by golly, you put on a tie when you yeah. go and you, yeah. you go to work. Born in 1921, you know, it's 1950. I have a family to raise. Here I go. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yet at the same time, you know, his head and neck are spilling out of his suit. You know it's what I true. mean? Like, like he's so obviously a mess underneath it as well um, that he can't, he can't really hide it. And he's still, you know, the, the famous image, image of him that you see on the Dangerfields, you know, comedy logo is he's, he's tugging at his tie and his tie is loose around his neck. Um, right. But here, he's still tugging at his tie, but it's actually perfectly tied tight around his neck. Um, right. You know, and and here he he doesn't have. I mean, sometimes you'll see him, and he's he's moving so much he has this like thin sheen of sweat on him. Yeah, and I think that as he hit his rhythm throughout the course of the the series of jokes that we just talked about, I think he becomes less sweaty. I think he gets so much confidence that his body temperature cools, his pulse goes down, uh-huh. and he's like, oh, "I'm just destroying. I uh-huh. am just destroying." Yeah. Yeah, and and even in his moments where he's breaking the fourth wall in a joke mix, he's still destroying. Yep, you know it's 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 pretty it's just brilliant. How close is he to like your when you think about like your ideal comic in terms of how they approach and do comedy? How close is he to that for you? That's a very interesting question. That will become one of our recurring questions here on jokes. Sweet. Um, you know, I think that's something that's really worth contemplating beforehand i have thought that in terms of sheer performer robin williams his energy is so insane that there's yeah. no one that matches it yeah and um, yeah 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 and so and then in terms of uh precision perhaps overly practiced precision there's george carlin the ability to react to the unknown mm-hmm. i mean there's any number, but Richard Pryor was great. Mm-hmm. Anybody today who's doing it well? Um, I mean, talk about Bill Burr, right? Yeah. Um, you know, who, who else is, what other comics are, are walking around that are selling out big arenas? Um, yeah. I'm not even sure. Chris Rock. Yeah. Uh, as far as his ideal performer, I think that Dangerfield, because for some reason he was accessible to so many people to a like poor kid you know in new mexico as much as he was you know the jet set in new york and he had a range and an approachability and uh a vulnerability that was (laughs) he had that vulnerability that like you pointed out at the time that he's being self-deprecating he's also talking about bestiality and yeah you're caught off guard and his ability to quickly cause imbalance uh is unparalleled i don't know if if i were to try and do something like that 
I don't think I can do it. I don't think it's, I don't you know, know anybody. It, it's hard. It's you know just who, hard to do that. You know who's the comedian maybe that's the sort of like comedian laureate today that maybe is like the modern day version of him? Um, it might be Brian Regan in terms of his main shtick is that he's kind of an idiot and doesn't know what he's doing. And his main funny voice is that voice that all starting comedians do of the, you know, um, oh, it's just a cup of dirt, you know? <laughs> like oh, yeah. Sure. And so they, they all kind of, that's like the modern day version of the no respect, you know, it's that, that's the, I don't read good, you know, that's the, that's the Brian Regan thing. And that's what he does. And Brian Regan actually once said that, well, maybe more than once, but I've heard him a couple of times say that uh, um, he doesn't do corporate shows. And he said, the reason is, is because you're sitting there, <coughs> damn it, there's a call. You're sitting there next to your boss and your boss like wants you to be smart. And so to relate to his comedy means you have to relate to being dumb, you know? Um, and that's how it works. So he just found he doesn't, he just doesn't do corporate shows because it's not the right mix for it. And Dangerfields is very, Dangerfield is very similar. Like for me, you know, in a way, he's my, <clears throat> he's my perfect comic in that it's that kind of comic that if they manage to get me going, I'm going to laugh the hardest no matter what. But the comedians that, kind of have one setup, like a two minute setup and then a seven minute punchline that follows that. Those are the ones that get the easiest laugh out of me. But his kind of comedian are the ones that get the toughest laugh out of me. Man, I remember one time I saw Jeff Ross live. Remember Jeff Ross? You know Jeff Ross. Oh, I, I, yeah. No, yeah. I, I uh, follow Jeff Ross on Twitter and I love whenever he is doing anything. He's, he's the roast master. He's the one who does the roast. Um, yeah. And uh, I saw him live and he, he did this bit about how old his grandma is. And he like, he hit this one line where he was like, my grandma is so old that she could be, she could be taken out by, she could die from chewing gum. That was the line. And then he just, he, and then he just acted it out. He was like, ugh, ugh, not going out like this. <laughs> <laughs> And I was on the floor and he just kept hitting line after line after line. I almost had to walk out of the room because I was like, my life was in danger at that moment because uh, he had me laughing so hard. And Dangerfield is the kind of comedian that totally could do that to me if he catches me in the right frame of mind and then hits me with the joke after joke after joke after joke after joke, you know? And you, you can go back online and see some of these old... Um, these old Carson shows that he did because mm -hmm. he was on a lot mm -hmm. and Carson loved him and yeah. he, he kills all the time. Uh -huh. This one I consider to be unique because of the surprise ending. The fact that he's killing and killing and killing. And then you're like, okay, they're going to go to commercial, but yeah. then he takes it just that one step further. And, <laughs> <laughs> how are you doing? What's new with you? That's, it's brilliant, that's Jeff, Jeff Ross, that's a very interesting comedian to draw an analogy to. Um, parallel, yeah, there's a parallel there for sure in terms of how he approaches it, the setup, takedown, setup, takedown, you know. He has that line, uh, um, someone was so ugly that their Hebrew name was Yich. That <laughs> 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 fucking kills me, man. That's a great line. Hebrew name was Yich. <laughs> <laughs> 
and again, he's one of those guys that you can go, okay, he has a volume. He just has volumes of jokes. Volumes of jokes. Because they're just one-liner, one-liner, one-liner. Yeah. Uh, that's good. That's good stuff. So what's the I, – I think we've covered the bases. Um, what, what do you think the next uh, – what's the next joke? Do you know? You don't have to well, say it. I, I, I've got, I, there's a comedian I like whose name is Paul F. Tompkins. I'm not going to say the joke. We'll do it for next time. Um, but he's got this joke that's exactly like how I described, where it's a very short setup and then a very long punchline. And it's the perfect joke as far as I'm concerned. And it's one of those jokes for me where I've heard it hundreds of times, you know, in the, on its own, because it's Spotify, so you can just play it on, the own, on its own, or like in the context of the full show. And, um, and it's always funny to me. And if I don't hear it for a while, I know I can return to it and it will make me laugh just as much as it's done every time. And when I meet someone who likes that kind of humor, I enjoy sharing it because then watching them laugh makes me laugh and uh, it's just joyous. So I return to this joke quite a bit and uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited to bring it for next time for sure. Excellent. Well, very good. Thanks for letting me talk about basically a YouTube clip. Um, <laughs> my pleasure man I love Dangerfield he's not by the way he does not rank as like he wasn't like one of my favorites when I was a kid but he was definitely a go-to like this is worth a worth a shot but he definitely wasn't like up there but that dude was like brilliant man just brilliant yeah he was he was approachable from a popular standpoint mm -hmm. he was also edgy enough that when as you got older you're like oh there's, there's something else going on with this guy like, yeah there's there's definitely something weird here. Um, but also lovable, you know? And lovable, yeah. yeah. I mean, for, for real. Yep. Um, yeah, so, all right. Well, till next time, take us out, Josh. Rock on, man. Hey, uh, thanks for joining us here on Jokes. Uh, look forward to, um, you know, seeing you next time on Jokes. If you like this, please like it. And anyway, you can share it with your friends and uh, neighbors and countrymen. Stay safe out there in this uh, coronavirus and don't lose your brain too much and all this uh, um, you know, weather amnesia and now corona amnesia that we're all going Rock on, man. See you next time. All right. Next time on Jokes. Next time on Jokes.